The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Affirms that there is hope. And I love Romans 8, one we're going to look at mostly today, my message. There is no condemnation. Not because we just pretend there's no God and then we pretend there was no judgment, but because there were other solutions that God enacted on our, on our behalf. But to really get the whole picture, we want to back up a little bit and just briefly look at the context. Uh, the, the verse starts in, in 8.1. He says, uh, So um, there is therefore now no condemnation. The therefore points us back to what he's been talking about before. And there's some discussion among scholars about how far back it goes. Um, probably uh, Paul in his flow of argument is going back to uh, Romans chapter 5 and in Romans chapter 5 verses 16 through 21 he talks about this condemnation that comes to us because of sin Uh, he says this and I'm going to just kind of highlight a few of the past verse sections from that passage he says judgment uh, the judgment following one's trespass brought condemnation okay Because of one man's trespass, that is Adam, death reigned through that one man. Therefore, one trespass led to condemnation for all people. Now the law came to increase that trespass so that sin reigned in death. And uh, he takes chapter 6 and 7 and he develops some of the themes in this. He talks about how that condemnation has been compounded and how we cannot get out of the grip of it because of the two enemies of sin, which is a master over us, and the law, which is another master over us, both of which we're powerless to conquer on our own. So that's what we spent many weeks talking about in Romans 6 and 7. Uh, so he picks up this flow of argument, and he says, you know, there is no con- condemnation, there is hope. Uh, and as he has said in Romans 5, 20 and 21, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death... Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Uh, So he did talk about uh, the power of sin and why we can't get out of this condemnation on our own. We're powerless to overcome it because sin is master over us, law is master over us, and we can't do much about it. And the result of that, he says, is condemnation. We're guilty before God. And whatever people in the world want to deceive themselves, fool themselves into believing, the truth is they need to flee the sense of condemnation because it's true. Uh, Any person who has come to Christ has come to Christ because they felt the weight and burden of that condemnation. We've come to the point of realization that our sin has cost us everything in our relationship with God. And we feel the weight and the burden of that. Uh, He climaxes this chapter leading up to chapter 8 with this famous passage we looked at last week where uh, Paul is describing this battle between his will that wants to do what's right and his uh, his actions which never comply, right? On the one hand, he's wanting to be a good person, wanting to follow the law. On the other hand, he's continually falling short. And uh, the good news, whether you take it that he's talking about his pre- uh, pre-Christian experience, or if he's talking about his experience as a believer. The good news is when you get to Romans 8, 
the, the solution is the same. And he gets to the end of chapter 7. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. He says, man, I am, I am condemned. And he feels the weight and guilt and burden of condemnation. And he says, who will rescue me? Who will rescue me from this, this feeling, this weight, this burden of my guilt? No one asked for a show of hands, but, uh, you know, have you experienced that sense of the weight and burden of guilt? Are you still feeling the experience uh, of that condemnation? Right? Well, we'll talk about that this morning. Um, for a lot of years of my Christian experience, I felt condemned, right? And the more I grew in Christ, the more I became aware of how much I had failed, right? Things that before I thought were okay, all of a sudden I'm finding new things. Oh, you mean to tell me that was sin? <laughs> Who knew, right? And the condemnation grows. It's bigger, right? Uh, it's no longer the Ten Commandments, but there's all kinds of little commandments that I find out I also broke, right? Um, and there's that sense of condemnation. Uh, but the good news in Romans 8, 1 is much different. So let's read verses 1 through 4, where Paul says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Uh, I want to look just at three areas uh, to unpack this. Uh, the first area would be that we have a new verdict. Um, and to really grasp our new verdict as not guilty, as under no condemnation, we need to review just a little bit what the verdict was. Uh, and Paul's been very clear about this, that because of our sin, the consequence of that is eternal judgment. We were pronounced guilty, right? Sin uh, condemns us before the law and before God. And, and Paul was very clear about that in the early parts of the book and in this letter and others. Uh, the verdict is guilty and the sentence passed is a death sentence. Uh, because of sin, we are eternally separated from uh, God and his goodness. We live outside the garden. We live apart from God's will and purpose in our life, eternally under his judgment and wrath. Uh, we know that. But a second part of the condemnation that's true for most people is a sense of self-condemnation. Not only is God very much aware and we're judged by his righteous standard, but the truth is we know how big a mess-ups we are as well, right? Uh, as we, uh, if we grew up in church, we grew up in Sunday school, we read the Bible, even as people who lived apart from Christianity, who live under moral codes and moral laws, we all become painfully aware of how we fail to live up to even our own standards of right and wrong. Uh, and the result of that is we, uh, we, we, we come through life with this inherent feeling, you know, I really am a mess up. Deep down inside, I screw up often. I am not, and, and as Romans 7 describes so well, people come through life with this feeling of, I know what I'm supposed to do, 
But repeatedly, I fail. I fail. I fall short. And people can come up with excuses for that. They can try to dismiss it by, like my friend did, saying God doesn't exist. But the reality is, deep down inside, we all feel this weight of self-condemnation. It is part of the human condition uh, to feel that gnawing sense of, you know, I don't measure up. I'm really not a very good person. I constantly disappoint myself. And uh, we could talk about the psychology of all that that generates in us. I think it fuels a lot of dysfunction. I think uh, we, we hide from that gnawing sense of failure through addictions and other distractions. But the reality is it's true of every human being. It's true of every human being. Uh, and it's true of many of us as Christians. We live this, with this n- nagging sense of failure, this nagging sense of not measuring up. Um, and we feel guilty. We feel the sense of God's judgment and, and the sentence that is before us. Right? Um, but the good news of Romans chapter 8 is that uh, we have been declared not guilty. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation. And to really get the impact of this verse, uh, we really need to read it in Greek, which I would do, but you'd probably throw things at me, so I won't. But, but let me give you the word order in Greek. Literally, if you were to translate it directly in Greek, it would, it would read like this. No, now therefore condemnation. Right? Very first word, very strong, and it's actually not simple, the simple word no, but it's the word nothing. No one, not anything. No one, not anything, now therefore condemns us. And Paul uses the strongest possible language he can muster to state our new state and condition, our new place before God. He says, look, you are no longer under any condemnation. That uh, verdict has been reversed for you in Christ. And, And it's very important that we qualify it. He says, there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. To be a Christian, to be in Christ, to put our faith in him, means that our verdict has been radically reversed. And now, 100%, we stand before God... And he says, absolutely not guilty. I can find absolutely no wrong thing, no failure, no charge against you with which to condemn you. So all of our sin, all of our failures, all of our mess-ups, all of our disappointments, all the things we don't like about ourselves, God says, they're gone. They are out of my sight. They are not held against our account. There is no condemnation. We're absolutely pronounced not guilty. Um, and as the, the verdict has changed um, by God, uh, what place do we have to reassert it in our own life, right? Should we feel condemnation? That's kind of a delicate and sensitive question, right? Um, Because we know that sin is still sin. We know that we still, at times, are guilty of moral failure. Should we feel condemnation? I believe uh, Paul would say no. No. He would say this. He would say, when you sin, uh, God has a remedy for that, and it's confession. You take that sin to the cross. You lay it at the feet of Jesus, and you receive the cleansing of his blood. 
But then you walk away and you leave it there. Right? You leave it there. Uh, there is nothing in your life, past, present, and praise God, even future, that God will hold over us. Okay? Now, a uh, whole other sermon, but uh, there are consequences for sin. Okay? If you do stupid things, sometimes there are consequences of our stupidity. Right? Uh, you drive too fast and crash your car. God forgives you. You know, the insurance company doesn't. Um, you pay, right? But those things are not punishment and they're not condemnation, right? And especially, there should be no place in our life for self-punishment because to do that is really to contradict what Jesus did for us. We have got to learn to take our sin, confess it to God, and leave it at the cross and walk away saying, I am not guilty. God has covered it and there is no condemnation in my life. I'm convinced that Paul uh, longs for us, Jesus longs for us to, to be the character and tone and nature of our life. That we live as people who are clearly not guilty and who view ourselves differently than we did before. That we lift off of our own life uh, the condemnation that, that badgered us for so long before. Right? And there's an incredible freedom in this. Right? An incredible freedom that takes a lot of faith, actually, to believe and buy into. But I, let's try this. You ever take a big, deep breath in? Breathe out, I'm not guilty. Right? I am not guilty. Right? I am not condemned. God sees me in Christ. He sees me as he sees his beloved son, Jesus. Right? Because, and we'll see in a minute why this is, but because of Christ, I am free. Right? I am free. There is no condemnation. And Paul, you know, if, uh, if he could have written this in bold print, I mean, this would have been in bold print. No condemnation. Right? There's therefore now no condemnation. And not only that, but our sentence has been remanded. And it's a legal, remanding a sentence is a legal term that means uh, if an appeals court determines a sentence, a sentencing court committed an error... Uh, against the criminal, they can remand their sentence. It means they send them back to the court and says, no, you messed up. You need to re-hear uh, his case and re-sentence him. Right? Uh, no condemnation means that we've been, our sentence has been remanded. We go back to court, we stand before the judge, and the judge looks at the documents and says, oh, according to these documents, you've been declared not guilty. Your verdict was canceled, therefore... Your sentence is also canceled. Right? There is no longer punishment of any kind for sin. When God disciplines us, when God brings things into our life uh, to direct us, to train and instruct us, it's never punishment. Okay? Jesus bore the full weight of our punishment. Uh, if you're having a hard time, it is not God's punishment. If you're in Christ... Right? It may be his instruction. It may be his uh, insightful leading. It is never punishment. Jesus bore the full punishment of our sins. Therefore, we bear none. Right? No verdict, guilty of, verdict of not guilty. Sentence acquitted. Right? There's no punishment for us. Um, the question then comes, well, how can this be? How can God be just 
Does he just throw it out? Does he just say, well, I like you, and so therefore I'll give you a break? Well, Paul's very clear to state that uh, God has acquitted us. He's declared us not guilty. But he does it through the means of perfect justice, a new means of justice that he never revealed before. And he says this, amazing words. He says, um, For in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Uh, first of all, he says the law could not do this. Okay, The law could not bring us a, a state of, non, of, of non-condemnation. Right? Under the law, we were found guilty. And the problem was never the law. The problem was us. Right? He says the law was made weak because of our flesh. Uh, when I was in middle school, even high school, I, I, I wanted to play basketball. And I, I really had the coordination of like, you know, well, I had no coordination. I don't know what was as uncoordinated as I was. And um, I would try to play basketball. And, and all my friends would say, if you play basketball, we'll lose. Michael Jordan could be on our team. If you're on, we'll lose, right? Because you're so bad. Um, and, 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 and it's true, and you know, coaches will say this, you know, the team is only good as its weakest link, right? If you're the weak link and you're really weak, you can cost victory for the team. Well, in this team up, it's, it's, it's tennis doubles. It's me and the law, right? And, uh, and Paul says, there's no hope. The law is pretty good. You're terrible, right? And no matter what, you lose. You lose, right? Uh, he says the law could not do it. As good as the law was from God, the law could not accomplish what was necessary. Uh, but he says, and, and I love this, he says what the law could not do, God did. God did. God, and the, the, the wording here is really this, that God took it upon himself to fix this. Right? God did by sending his own son. Uh, God looked at our state and he saw that we were hopeless, hopelessly lost under eternal condemnation. And he said, I will fix this. I will take responsibility for this penalty, for this verdict. And I will bear in my son, I will send my son to take the penalty, the judgment, the condemnation that belongs to us. Um, and he, he, uh, he says that it's done in two ways. This new justice is served in two ways. First of all, he says that sin was condemned in Jesus' flesh. And he uses an interesting phrase here. He says that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Um, you know, we know about the incarnation. We know that Jesus took upon himself human flesh but here, Jesus, uh, Paul doesn't use the term just human flesh. He uses the term that Jesus took upon himself sinful flesh. Uh, a unique phrase that's, that's rather strong and, and ought to be somewhat troublesome for us. Uh, if we think about what Paul is saying here, 
God sent his son, but he didn't send him just to be human like us. He sent him, in a sense, to be sinfully human like us. Now, of course, our theology starts raising all kinds of red flags. Ah, but Jesus was perfect, wasn't he? Of course, Jesus had to be perfect. Uh, and so Paul, Paul balances this very fine thread of truth by throwing in the word likeness. And it's a, a little bit awkward that he would use this language. He says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Uh, which, again, creates a whole other set of problems. Does that mean Jesus really wasn't in true flesh? Was he just kind of like flesh? Was he not really fully human? Was he just, you know, a hologram that appeared to look like sinful flesh? Well, if we take all of Paul's theology, all of Scripture, uh, we could sort it out this way. Jesus was fully human, fully like us, 100%. He came in the form of a human being, fully human. Uh, not only that, he came in the likeness as close as he could possibly get to not just our humanity, but our fallen humanity. Jesus came in the form or likeness of fallen, wicked, sinful human flesh. But, of course, he did that without ever participating in sin, without ever failing himself by stepping into sin. But Paul, what Paul is saying here is, ought to be staggering for us. Jesus took on as much of our nature as we are without himself sinning. You know, have you ever thought about what it would be like to, to you know, live in somebody else's life, to, to, as it were, put on somebody else's clothes? You know, maybe if you're a soccer fan, you dreamed of wearing, you know, your, 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 your hero's soccer jersey, stepping into his role, being the, you know, the one who wins the World Cup by that last second kick, right? And uh, celebrating what it would be to wear that jersey, right? Or maybe you've dreamed of stepping in, you know, putting on the, the suit of a, of a great leader of some country uh, where you have power and you, you wear the, the suit, the clothes of, of that power and authority. Well, we dream of those things, but there's also another kind of people whose clothes we would never want to put on, right? And I have a friend who many years ago worked at a rendering plant. Does anybody know what a rendering plant is? I'll tell you what a rendering plant is if you don't know. Uh, the, the, the steak you had, the hamburger you had this past week came off a cow and they, they take all the meat off the cow uh, so we can eat it. But there's a lot of stuff left over. A lot of parts that actually we don't eat. And uh, they've learned they can make money off all these parts. Right? So they take all these leftover animal parts to a place called a rendering plant. And they grind it all up and they put it in a big huge bin uh, sometimes several stories tall, and they let it ferment and do all kinds of magical things there. And uh, my friend worked at a rendering plant, and he was a mechanic in there. What it meant is when these big machines that auger this stuff uh, from one place to another and process it, when those machines break, he would have to go into these, into these bins and work on stuff. And one day, uh, my, my car broke down, and it was, uh, my car broke down. I think the smell was so bad, it just overwhelmed my car. And, because uh, these places just smell for miles. I mean, you can smell these things from miles away. And so I went to get help to his rendering plant where he was working. And he had just been in one of these pits, one of these bins. And he came out, and he, I mean, he was covered head to toe in slime, right? 
this horrid, rancid, smelly stuff. And he loved this. I mean, for him it was like plain, you know. Okay, I would never want to wear his clothes. Uh, just talking to him was almost enough, you know, just trying to hold it together, trying to be cool, you know. This doesn't bother me. Okay. Well, you know, that, that's, that's only a part of the picture of what, went, what it meant for Jesus, holy God, to come and to come in the likeness of sinful flesh, right? to put on the rancid, horrid clothes of our flesh. Though himself not participating as a sinner, in every way taking on what it meant to be sinful. To be in a flesh that is prone to sin, that is weak, that is corrupt, that is guilty and condemned. Not because of his own personal sin, but as he identified with our sin. He put on that kind of clothes. Right? He took on that kind of identity. And it says that he did that so that God could condemn sin in his flesh. Right? So Jesus took the full weight of what it meant for us to be fallen sinful humanity. And then God took his son, who was now wearing that sinful flesh, and he poured out upon him the judgment and wrath, the condemnation that belonged to us. He pronounced him guilty and he poured out on him the death sentence of that guilt. Right? Uh, that's why we have no condemnation. Right? Because God put the condemnation fully on his son. It's, it's, it's hard to imagine. How could God do that? What kind of God would do that, sending his most precious son in that way for that reason? Right? And that's the gospel. Uh, God did it fully and completely for us. But there's more. Not only did he do that, but he says, secondly, he says he condemned sin in the flesh. He poured out his wrath and judgment upon it. But to a godly purpose. He says he did that in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Right? Uh, the righteous requirement of the law. The law demands perfection. The law has very strict and clear requirements that we must fall under. Uh, and if we can't live up to that, uh, that standard, uh, we are condemned. But he says that, that Jesus' death has given us uh, the capacity to, or the fulfillment of those just requirements and demands of the law. Uh, well, what does that mean? <clears throat> Well, some people would see this as saying, what this means is that now we can be really good people. Now we can do what the law requires. But the problem is the language he uses here doesn't allow for that, for two reasons. For one, it's past tense. He says that the righteous requirements would be fulfilled past tense. Uh, Aorist tense. It means it's done all in one shot. Secondly, he uses a passive, which means it's not something we do, but something that's done to us. What, what Paul says here is that Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law perfectly. And in his death and in the transmission of his life to us, uh, we now are declared as those who have perfectly uh, accomplished the law. Not because we did it, but because we have done it through Christ. Right? Uh, so 
that's why we're, there's no condemnation. Not only have our sins not be, been, been charged against us, held over us, but the righteousness of Christ is now fully ours. So even though we mess up, the truth is, in God's eyes, He sees us as those who have perfectly fulfilled the law and the demands of the law in Christ. So not only are we no longer evil, but we are now perfectly good, perfectly right, having in Christ accomplished all that the law demanded and commanded. Uh, And all of that done instantly through the work of Christ. So from now on, this point out, no matter how much you mess up, the truth is, uh, as God sees you, He sees you as those in Christ who have perfectly met the requirements of the law. So there is therefore now no condemnation. Uh, Is that good news? That is good news. That is the good news. right? And it's important to see that it's fully accomplished by the power and hand of God. How much of it did we have anything to do with in this process? Zero. Other than faith. Other than appropriating what Jesus has done. We did nothing to solve our sin. We did nothing to keep the requirements of the law. It's accomplished in us completely by the doing of God through the work of Christ. Last thing he says, uh, and I love this passage, it's very Trinitarian. So you've got God the Father sending the Son, uh, and you've got to get the Holy Spirit in here. The thing that was lacking in chapter 7, we said, was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned more times in chapter 8 than any other single chapter in the writings of Paul, and actually in the whole New Testament. I think 21 times uh, he uses the word Spirit, most of them speaking of the Holy Spirit. All right, so for a guy who in chapter 7 never once mentioned the Holy Spirit, now the Holy Spirit comes in full force. And uh, notice there's a couple of things that he says about the Spirit in this passage. First of all, he says that, that in Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. So how, how is this freedom, this no condemnation, this work of Christ fully appropriated or unfolded in our life? Well, he says it's done mainly through the, the law of the spirit of life. Uh, now, in Paul, uh, he uses the word law in many different ways, and it's confusing uh, because we don't know if he's talking about the law of Moses, the law of people, uh, if he's talking about principles or powers. In this case, it, I, I believe that he's speaking of a principle or authority or force or power. Kind of like we would use the word law of gravity, Right? Whoa, I just got really loud all at once. It's the rain. I don't know. Um, it's, it's a principle or a force, right? Gravity is not a moral code. Okay, we don't say we keep the law of gravity as in if I, if I break the law of gravity and start floating, I've sinned. Right? That'd be kind of silly. Or if I get on an airplane and I defy gravity through flight, that I've sinned because I broke the law of gravity. No, we don't mean that. When we talk about the law of gravity, we're talking about a force or power that controls how we live. And you can't really actually break it. You can use it to our advantage or disadvantage. You can, uh, you can work around it. You can learn ways to, uh, to change its impact or force. But it's a force that has to be reckoned with regardless. Right? You could say it weighs heavily on us. Okay, really bad pun. Right? It's a force. 
well, that's how Paul is using the word Holy Spirit here. It is a life force. It is a power at work in our life. Uh, and it's opposed to the power of the flesh that was working before. He says, you've been set free from the power of sin and death, working in our flesh by the power of the Spirit. So he's talking about two forces, two controlling things in our life before we were under the control or power of sin and the flesh. But now a new power has come into our life, the Holy Spirit, and he specifically calls him the Spirit of life. Um, it is through the Holy Spirit that life unfolds for us. And uh, I'm not going to talk about that much this morning because he explains it further in, in Romans chapter 8, what this life force is. But it's the Spirit that brings life. An eternal life uh, comes through the agency of the Holy Spirit. So Christ did this work, the Father sent him, but it's the Holy Spirit who's doing something by his force and power in our life to make it happen. Well, what exactly is happening? Well, he says it this way. He says in verse 4, that the righteous requirements of the law have been met, have been fulfilled in us through Christ, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, uh, this is a dangerous, dangerous verse here because a lot of people want to insert into this phrase the word if, right? If we walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Uh, which would mean this. It would mean on the days that I'm living in the Spirit, I'm saved, right? And God's pouring out salvation in me. The Spirit of life is at work in me. But if on a bad day I decide I'm not going to walk in the Spirit and I'm going to walk in the flesh, my salvation gets uh, in, uh, in jeopardy, right? But that's not actually what he says. There's no if, there's no condition here. Uh, in fact, it's interesting. In the whole of chapter 8, Paul never gives a command and he gives really no con conditions. Uh, the verbs he uses throughout this chapter are statements of fact. And he says here, statement of fact, if you are in Christ, you are walking according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. Now, a little bit later, he's going to contradict that a little bit. And not actually contradict it, but he's going to spell out more clearly what that means. And one principle we've got to observe is that the flesh is still with us. He does not say those who walk according to the Spirit because the flesh has been eradicated. Uh, now we're going to talk later about what the flesh is. It's, it's the fallen, weak part of us. It's the part of us that gets us in trouble. And it is a force or power in our, our life subject to sin. And Paul is clear that that force, that power, still is present with us. But he says if you're a believer in Christ, you now live or walk by the force or power of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, uh, it's kind of like getting married. Uh, bef before I was married, I lived, I lived singly, lived by myself, and uh, I had my own, my own creative touch in decorating my room. And it was, it was what I li like to call, you know, the decor of dirty sock. And uh, I felt that, you know, dirty socks just add that, 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 that touch to a room. You know? Now, I wasn't a total slob. Uh, you know, there, you could see the floor, and, um, but there's definitely the, the you know, single guy look to my, my decor. Dirty socks here, you know, things not quite put away. Uh, just the look of a single guy. But then I got married, and I got a new roommate, and this new roommate, my wife, had a totally different sense of decorating than I did. And did not actually appreciate, you know, the decoration of dirty socks. Unbelievable. 
just did not appreciate how it just added that sense of depth and lived-in look to a room. And um, I found myself now living with a, a new force or power in my life <laughs> that influenced my interior decorating a lot, right? Now instead of dirty socks, there was like flower pots and little cutesy things. Ribbons, right? And I never had ribbons before. Now there's ribbons and pink, right? Probably not cool guy stuff. Because I had a new roommate, a new force, a new influence shaping the interior decoration of my room. Right? What Paul says here, look, if you're in Christ, you now have a new roommate. Uh, sin and the flesh and death may still be there. right? They still may think they have some influence, and they do. But there's a new roommate who has a whole lot more influence, right? who comes with force and power to control and shape the direction of your life in a different way. Uh, there's no condemnation. And those are not any longer condemnation or guilt. The, the Spirit brings life. But the Spirit brings also a whole different path of life. Moving away from the guilt and burden of law and failure and moral collapse. There's now a force moving in our life, changing the direction we're going. Now, the Holy Spirit, you know, God is powerful. God could come any way he wants. Uh, oftentimes we want the Holy Spirit to come like a flash flood. And in some degrees, in some of our lives, in some areas, he does come with that kind of just lightning force, instantly, rapidly cleansing out and washing out junk out of our life. But my experience is that that's not normally the way the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit is a mighty force, but not a mighty force like a flash flood. He is much more a mighty force like a great, huge oak tree that comes and begins to exercise influence through the planting of tiny, tiny little seeds that begin to sprout and grow, and he waters them. But it takes years and decades for those seeds to grow and to sink and take root and for the influence and power of the Holy Spirit to to creep and to grow into every area of our life. You know, I would love instant, absolute, 100% life transformation. So would everybody who lives with me, right? They wish it would go faster. Uh, but God has not ordered or ordained it to happen this way. I would love that God would just crush the flesh and that the Holy Spirit would just so wipe out the flesh in my life that that it's not even an option anymore. But he does not do that. Uh, he chooses for many reasons, of building faith, of teaching us, of growing us in humility, to shape in us the image and likeness of Christ, for the Holy Spirit to work like a great, slow, majestic oak tree that gradually takes greater greater force and power in our life. But it's a process. It is a process. But this is what this means. It means that if you look back, if you've been a believer for time, years, decades, right, you should see an ever-increasing move of the Spirit, influence and power of the Spirit working in our life. Right? We should see more strength. Is it, is it an easy process? Oh, no, right? Sometimes it's very painful, very difficult as that tree piece by piece crushes 
parts of our life under its roots. Right? But the truth is, the truth is this. You're, you're in Christ. You have a new force, a new life force, a new power at work in your life. So there's no condemnation. There's no guilt. There's no shame. And there is in us something alive pushing us, directing us, leading us. And it's not like the law. Right? It's not like the law that demands things and sets itself against us so that we, you know, we talked about the law. It brings out the worst of us. It makes us resistant. Right? The Holy Spirit works subtly because He changes us from the inside. He replaces those longings and impulses. Uh, and as we go through the rest of chapter 8, we're going to see some cool things about how the Holy Spirit does that. But today I just want to encourage us. Uh, you know, if you're here this morning and you're feeling any traces, any traces of, of condemnation, of guilt, uh, you know, ask yourself, are there unconfessed sins behind that? Are there sins in my life that I haven't been honest with that are driving those feelings? Right? If that's true, then you need to confess. You need to take it to the cross. You need to go to Jesus and say, you know, I have not been honest. Maybe you need to confess it to other people as well that have been affected. Say, look, I have not been honest with this. But when you take it to the cross, when you confess it, when it's covered by the blood of Christ, it stays there, wiped out by the cross. And we need to walk away um, with a whole different spirit, right? No condemnation. Uh, if, on the other hand, those, those feelings of guilt and condemnation come because you feel you need to punish yourself, because you need to remind yourself what a horrible person you are, because growing up, your parents, you know, this was their strategy for discipline. You know, one way to make sure they never get proud, just tell them what a creep they are. Um, you know, that, that's a good parenting style that was popular back in my era. You've got to learn to disconnect that voice from the voice of God. Because God says, there's no condemnation. I have fully paid the price in my son for you to keep piling on judgment is to mock what Jesus did. Let it go, right? Take in, through the power of the Spirit, the freedom that He's called us to. The Spirit of life has set us free from the, the law, the power of sin and death. Right? Let's pray. Wow, Father, we just really stand uh, so amazed at what You have done for us, in us, through us, in the person of Jesus and through the power of your Spirit. And that by simply putting our faith in Christ, you have done all of these amazing things through the wonderful gospel of Jesus. And we now have living in us a whole different power, a whole different force that uh, sets us free from all of that. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's just struggling with, with uh, feelings of guilt uh, from the con condemning spirit that comes from Satan, the accuser, Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would confirm a totally different message in their heart, a message of freedom and release uh, that comes through the life we have in Christ. And God, may we be faithful to praise you for the incredible gift of your Son. 
and for all that He has done for us on the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.